Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. While you're turning there, have I ever told you the time uh, that Ted Nugent hit my car with his camo hummer? If I haven't, that's the story I'm going to tell. Once upon a time, I was a part of a men's Bible study uh, years ago, and uh, we wanted to get together for breakfast. So where do you think a bunch of guys got together for breakfast? La Madeline, okay? Now, I personally didn't choose that. I personally hate La Madeline. I think that that's girl food. I go in there looking for bacon, and they're like, here's a quiche that won't fill you up. And so I don't like La Madeline. Uh, it's also French, okay? I'm from Texas, so there's only two good things that have ever come out of France, Bordeaux wine and John Calvin, and that's it. So there we are at uh, La Madeline's, and uh, we are sitting outside, uh, and pulls in, and, and in pulls to the parking lot, set a sentence, and pulling into the parking lot is this jacked-up camo Hummer, and this person takes this Hummer, and he parks right next to my car. Now, at this time, I had a very nice car. It was like a 1992 Saturn SC2 that was different colors of red, and the emergency brake button had popped off. So when I went on a date, I'd have to pull up the emergency brake, take a pair of needle-nose pliers, stick them in there, pull that out, and be like, okay, let's go see the movie, or whatever it was, okay? So this uh, camo Hummer uh, pulls in beside my car, and this guy whips open his door and hits my car, okay? Mainly my rearview mirror, but he just hits my car, bam. You can hear it, you can feel it, and out steps a guy that can only be described as having a very punchable face, okay? <laughs> out steps a guy named Ted Nugent. Now, if you don't know who Ted Nugent is, that's okay. I didn't either. I was born in 86. Ted Nugent was a rock star in the late 70s. So he opens this, uh, his car, hits my door with his door, and then he and his very blonde girlfriend start walking into La Madeline. Now, I turn to my buddies, and I'm like, that guy just hit my car. I think I'm going to go say something. And they're like, you should not do that. I said, why? They said, that's Ted Nugent. I said, who's Ted Nugent? They said, he's a rock star. He wrote things like Cat Scratch Fever. He's a guitar player. He's here in Dallas doing some sort of recording. And also, he's really weird politically, and he, like, hunts people. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I didn't go, and I didn't talk to him or anything. I just, uh, he, he got back in his car, and they uh, drove away. But the reason I tell you that story is, one, because it's funny, but two, because here's what was interesting to me. When he hit my car with his door, he did not care at all. It's not that he didn't know that he did it. You could hear it. You could hear it where we were sitting. You could see it. You could feel it. He hits the door, walks out, closes his door, doesn't look, and goes inside, okay? What you're going to see in the text today is the Apostle Paul is going to say the problem when people do not receive and believe the gospel is not that they don't know that it's true. It's not that the gospel hasn't gone out. It's not that it's not obvious. It's because there is a moral defect, and they don't want to see the gospel. The issue wasn't that he couldn't feel or hear that he hit my car. It's that he didn't care. And so what Paul is going to say, is going to say that's the same way with these Jews during Paul's time that are rejecting Christ and rejecting the gospel. The problem is not that they hadn't heard the message. The problem is that they didn't care. They didn't want to believe the message. They wanted to have that door hit the car and then just walk away. So this text is a long text. The first half of this text is going to go over uh, salvation for everyone. It's going to be talking about Jew and Gentile. How are people saved? And then in the second half, it's really going to narrow down and talk about the Jews during Paul's day who've rejected the gospel and specifically talk about why they've rejected the gospel. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 14. 
Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and just ask that you would guide us during this time. We thank you for sending Christ. We pray that uh, we might trust him more, having heard these words here in the scripture. So we love you. We ask you to bless this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Okay? There are several different ways that you can make an argument. By argument, I don't mean verbal dispute. I mean when you give your position and then give reasons for why you believe what you believe. Okay? Sometimes when you present an argument, you give independent reasons for why you believe what you believe. That's called a pillar argument. So if I put forward some proposition and then I give you 10 different reasons why I hold that, and all 10 of those are separate, all 10 of those are individual reasons, for you to beat my argument, you have to knock down all 10 of them, and then you have to reestablish your own argument, okay? That's something that uh, society doesn't recognize, by the way. They'll, you'll put forward 10 arguments, someone will shoot down one, and they think that they've won the argument. Not if it's a pillar argument like that. Not if those are independent reasons for why you believe what you believe, okay? But there's another way to make an argument, and it's where you link different premises together to create like a chain. Okay? Now, to defeat or to beat a chain argument, how many of those arguments do you need to break? Just one. How many links do you need to break to break a chain? Just one. Okay? Uh, what you're going to see here is the Apostle Paul is going to use this kind of chain argument to go from his first, the first thing he's going to say to his conclusion. Now, just as a little brain teaser, just to get you started, I've uh, included a poem called Why Are Fire Engines Red? So you can see this kind of argumentation. Ready? I'm just going to read it to you. We don't have it on the screen, but just hear it called Why Are Fire Engines Red? They have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve inches make a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins, F-I-N-N-S, people from Finland, the fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian, so they're red, okay? Do you see the logical progression there? Now, it's a terrible argument in that example because all of those commit an equivocation. All of those use we words in a weird way. But what, there is a proper way to make this argument to where you make a claim and then you make a claim that links to that and you make a claim that links to that one and one that links to that one and you create this argument, okay? The Apostle Paul does this several places. Let me show you a few. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here you see what's called a sorites, or this kind of heap argument, this chain that's built up. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Here he's saying, if you deny the general resurrection, that everyone will be resurrected, well, then you have to deny Christ's resurrection. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then you're still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, you're condemned. That's his argument. You see these different chains. Well, here the Apostle Paul is going to give you a chain from people going out, sent by God with the gospel, to the fact that somebody then believes the gospel, okay? So I want to read it again, and then I want to put it in chronological order for you. So verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here's what it would look like in chronological order, okay? First, there's going. Someone goes out with the gospel. 
Then there's preaching. Then there's hearing. Then there's believing. Then there's calling on Jesus. And then, therefore, you're justified. Okay? This is playing off of what Jeff was talking about last week about the way that you're saved is not by doing these magnificent feats of strength of going up to heaven or going down into the abyss, but rather that the gospel is near you, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord being Christ will be saved. So I say all of that to summarize verses 14 and 15 this way. For people to be saved, they have to call on Christ, which they can't do apart from belief in Christ, which they can't have apart from someone sharing the gospel with them, which they don't have an opportunity to hear unless someone brings it to them. How great is it when someone brings the good news of Jesus? Okay? That's what it's meaning. Let's look at verse 14 again. <clears throat> There's this phrase. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? Okay? I need to say something very, very strong, very, very offensive. It's one of the most offensive things that we hold as Christians historically. Okay? Now, for this discussion, I want to lay aside the question of what happens to infants when they die. I also want to lay aside the question of what happens to those who are mentally handicapped. If you would like to know our view on that, we have a great blog online called What Happens to Infants When They Die. Okay? But for this discussion, I want to simply try to answer this question. Is anyone saved, according to this passage, apart from hearing the message of the gospel, apart from receiving, whether it's reading or auditorily hearing or whatever it is, the message of the gospel. What about someone who is on a desert island somewhere who never gets a chance to hear about Christ, okay? What about someone in a village in Africa or a tribe in South America or some people group in Southeast Asia who never gets a chance to hear the gospel? Will they be saved? Look at me. No, they will not. This is what the Bible teaches unanimously across its passages, okay? People cannot be saved apart from the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. How are they going to believe on Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus? It is difficult, and it is strong, and it is offensive. But let me give you a bunch of texts. John 3.18, whoever believes in him, that's Christ, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, and men, the man Christ Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance got overlooked, meaning in the Old Testament where most people didn't know God. Okay? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What about someone who never gets the opportunity to hear the gospel? Notice this is a problem not just for those who are Reformed, not for, just for those who are Calvinistic, but Arminians as well. God is still having people born into families, some families where they will never get a chance to hear the gospel. What is going to happen to those people according to the Scriptures It is that they will not be saved? If that bothers you, then get off your blessed assurance and go do missions. Don't get mad at God. Don't get frustrated about that. If it bothers you, do something about it. Share the gospel. Be involved in missions. Be involved in evangelism. 
The reason this offends us is because we assume that there are all those people out there just longing to be saved, longing to know Christ, just pining, wanting a Bible to fall out of the sky or some missionary to go and bring them the gospel. That is not how people are. The Bible's clear. We've already seen it in Romans. There's none who seeks for God. I remember hearing an older pastor one time, I think he was a uh, Presbyterian minister, saying that when he was younger, he hated this idea that there were these people that had not heard the gospel and were going to hell. And so he really wanted to go on a mission trip. So he went on this mission trip, and he said, I thought when I got there, people would embrace us with open arms, that they would want to hear about Christ, that they would want to repent of their sins. He said, when I got there, they hated us. They loved sleeping around. They loved stealing from one another. They loved fighting for one another. They just wanted our stuff. They didn't want Christ at all. And that was shocking to him because for the first time he realized this, God is never damning innocent people that want him. God is only damning sinners who do not want him. I'll give you a little illustration. So I was in uh, Chicago one time with some friends, and uh, we went into this restaurant to have a deep dish pizza, which is pretty good in Chicago. And there was this homeless man that was outside, and he had a sign that said, Hungry, Homeless. And so as we were leaving the restaurant, my buddy said, you know what? I think we should get that guy some food. And so my buddy bought a deep dish pizza uh, for that guy. And so we walked over there and my friend kneeled down and said, hey man, I saw your sign. I saw that you're hungry. I just bought this pizza. Would you like it? And the guy looks at him and goes, is it thin crust? And my buddy's like, what is it? I don't know. Are you homeless? What kind of question is that? I mean, is it thin crust? Are you hungry or are you not hungry? Right? In the same way, there are not all these people that are just starving out there for Christ and the gospel. There are people that don't want Christ. God is never damning innocent people. He's only damning people who want nothing to do with Him. But the Bible is clear that we cannot be saved apart from the gospel message. Is that offensive? Yes. Is that what the Bible teaches? Yes. Is that what all of church history has held? Yes. There is no salvation outside of Christ because there's no other way for you to have your sins forgiven. You still sin against God, whether or not you know that God exists whether or not you believe in Jesus, but it's only in Christ that you can have those sins washed away. Look at the end of verse 14. It says this, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Okay, just to clarify, he's not saying you have to audibly hear the gospel and that you can't be saved any other way or else deaf people couldn't be saved, right? You can read the gospel, you can read the Bible, you can read a tract, you can watch a gospel movie, okay? So he's not saying that you literally have to only hear it with your ears. And when it says without someone preaching, that doesn't mean you can only get saved as long as a guy gets up with a suit behind a pulpit and gives an official sermon, official preaching. What he's saying is, how are they to believe without having the message of salvation? That's what he means by that. How are they to believe in Christ without some sort of medium through which they can hear about Jesus? Now, you might be asking this. Okay, Zach, you're saying people apart from Christ will not be saved. There are people born into tribes and places where they will never hear the gospel, but can't God or can't Jesus or something come to that person in a dream and share the gospel with them, okay? I have talked to several friends of mine who are missionaries in the Middle East. I have talked to professors that are professors of missions that have been missionaries, okay? And they will tell you stories of some Muslim, for example, in Saudi Arabia or wherever it will be, where that person will have Jesus come to them in a dream. But they have said in every single case that Jesus doesn't share the gospel with them directly. Rather, Jesus says something like, open a Bible, go talk to a Christian, go visit this church. So the question is not, can God do this? I think the bigger question is, does God do this? And it seems to be biblically that that's not typically the way that God does it. Even when Jesus comes to someone in a dream, he's still using humans to bring that gospel message because Jesus tells them to read a Bible or to go talk to a Christian or to join a church or whatever it might be. 
God likes using humans and having us be involved in his plans of saving others because he is a kind and loving and sharing God. Look at verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Here you see the importance of evangelism and missions. Okay, let me, let me just say a few things about this. Sixty years ago, what you could do is you could run up to somebody on the street and you could give them a tract and they would read it and not just instantly throw it in the trash. Sixty years ago, you could have a revival or you could have some event at your church where you bring in some big-name speaker and big-name evangelist and people would come and they would hear the gospel. Sixty years ago, when you used words like sin, people knew what you meant. When you used words like God, people knew what you meant. When you used words like repentance, people knew what you meant, okay? And so there are certain evangelistic techniques that worked great decades ago, but don't work as well today, okay? We are to be involved in evangelism. We are to be involved in sharing our faith. So let me just give you a really simple way to do this. You don't have to Romans Road somebody. You don't have evangelism explosion somebody. You don't have to run up with an evangel cube on the side of the road or any of those things. Let me give you the way that in 2018 will be most successful, okay? Simply be friends with lost people. If you will simply hang out with lost people and treat them like people and not projects, I promise you, you will get a chance to share Christ. Every person I've ever led to faith has been through a relationship. I've tried to just run up to somebody on the street. There are people that get saved that way, but it's never seemed to work for me. The people I've actually seen come to faith are people that I have a relationship with, that over time I get to share Christ. I promise you, if you will simply be friends with more lost people, hang out with lost coworkers, hang out with lost family members, hang out with lost friends, whatever it is, you will get a chance to talk about your faith, your church, your family, whatever it is, and you will have an inroad to the gospel. And it won't be awkward and it won't be weird. The problem is when we get saved, a lot of us lose all of our lost friends, and then we're scared scared to be around lost people because we think we'll catch the sinnies, right? So we don't give them the vaccine. We don't give them the vaccine of the gospel because we're afraid that we're going to get sick. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from lost people. You stay away from sin by staying close to Christ. It's the vaccine that will keep you from committing sin, Don't not bring the vaccine to people that need it because they have the disease. It is not the healthy who need a physician, but rather the sick. So plan on that. Pray about that. Start thinking, who who can I have over to my house? Who can I just go get lunch with? Not to do something weird, not to have them over to your house to watch the passion, just to hang out with them, okay? And you will get a chance to share the gospel. Eventually, you'll have to open your mouth. But if you'll wait for the right time, even if they don't receive it, you'll still be friends, they'll still be loved, and it won't be weird. Now, when it comes to missions, we're also to be involved in missions. One of the things that we are passionate about here, uh, about here at Parkway is missions, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but our church went through a revitalization about two and a half years ago. And so even today, our elders are wrestling through how do we best do missions? How do we reach the most people? How do we maintain faithfulness? How do we do church planning? That is something that we are passionate about. And so we're continuing to plan through these kind of things. But if you are interested in missions, let us know. Join Jesse and Betty Signs and go to Romania. Join Chuck Town and go help train pastors in Haiti. Okay? Uh, let us know. We have missions connections in Japan, in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, in different countries in Africa. We are to be about the business of missions and evangelism. That is central to our faith. The last phrase here where it talks about how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news is simply a way of saying that their feet are metaphorically beautiful because they bring the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is a quote from Isaiah 53.1, okay? Here's what Paul is saying. 
Though one is saved by believing the gospel, there's a lot of people that have not believed the gospel. Now, I'm going to look at that. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in just a few verses. I want you to notice one particular word here, though, in verse 16, okay? It says, but they have not all, what's the word there? Obeyed the gospel. Why isn't he using the word believed? He just used the word believing the gospel. Why is he now switching it to obeying the gospel? Well, let me give you three quick reasons. One, true faith produces obedience. When you follow Christ, it necessarily produces righteousness. You don't be obedient to get saved. You get saved and therefore walk in obedience. Number two, the Jews' problem was not ignorance, but a willing denial of Christ. Their problem is a failure to obey, and God's command to obey is to obey by submitting to the gospel, by believing in Jesus. But lastly, for us, practically, what is it that God wants from you? What is it that God wants from you? There's all these commands in the Bible and all these kind of things. What does God want from you? Here's what he wants from you. Ready? He wants you to believe in Jesus. That's his main command. We talk about a lot of other things in Christianity, and we should. That's the big one, though. To obey God is to believe in Jesus. That's what he wants. That's why he's linking those things. If you're not a Christian and you're just here today checking us out and you're wondering, what does God want from me? He wants you to become a Christian. He wants you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what obedience looks like. That's what salvation looks like. That's what submission looks like. It is an obedience of faith by believing in Christ. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay? Now that's kind of a strangely worded sentence, so let me interpret that for you. What he's saying is that saving faith comes from hearing a message about who Christ is and what he has done. That phrase, the word of Christ, seems kind of generic. What that means is a word about Christ. You have to know certain things about Christ to be saved, okay? So I I said this uh, a few weeks ago, so I want to just say it again here. Though there are experiences in Christianity, you experience salvation, you experience conversion, you experience God's love and joy, Christianity is primarily a doctrinal, not an experiential religion. That doesn't mean we don't have experience. It means what is the church based on? It's based on doctrine, okay? So you have to know certain things to be saved. You cannot be saved if you don't know Jesus died for your sins. You cannot be saved if you don't know that Jesus was raised from the dead. You cannot be saved if you don't know who Christ is, okay? You're saved by hearing a word about Christ. But this also means that if the the message of saving faith comes from a message about Christ, that that is to be the church's main message, okay? The church's main message is not about marriage. Some churches, that's all they talk about. The church's main message is not about evangelical politicking. That's what some churches do. It's not a message about secular social justice. It's not a message about how you can be a better person. It's not a message about you following this checklist of do's and don'ts. The main message of Christianity is this, that we have sinned and rebelled against Almighty God, but Christ has made a way where we might be redeemed through His life, death, burial and resurrection, we might have salvation. That and that alone is our central message. We talk about other stuff, but that is our central message. So before I came to Parkway, so in in between my last church and coming to Parkway, my wife and I had to visit a bunch of different churches. And I don't know if you've ever done that or not, but church shopping is the worst, okay? You feel like an exile. And churches wanted to do every stupid thing but preach the gospel. Some of them are doing dramas and skits, Some of them are having like a children's time where a pastor's talking to the kids and no one else is being edified. Other ones are reading weird monologues and these kind of things. And this was a season in my life where I was hurting. I felt far from God. I wanted to hear the Bible. I wanted to hear about Christ. I felt like the people that came up and said, sir, we would love to see Jesus. But instead, they wanted to do every stupid thing 
but the one thing that's not stupid, which is talk about Christ. And so I actually became a member here at Parkway before I was brought on staff here. When my wife and I finally found Parkway, we said, wait a second, this is a place that just opens the Bible and teaches it, that cares about faithfulness, that talks about grace, that talks about Christ. And this passage is to say the saving message is that. The saving message is the message of who Christ is and what He's done. Now look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Okay, let me explain something about this passage. Does everybody know the difference between general revelation and special revelation? If you think back, way back, years ago in our theological equipping class, we covered this. General revelation is the idea that you can know some things about God by nature, okay? There are certain things you can know, even if you didn't have a Bible, about God from nature. Mainly two things. One, you can know that God exists. There has never arisen in world history a culture that is naturally atheistic. You have to teach man to become an atheist. So you can do that like in the USSR through indoctrination, but mankind is naturally a worshiper. Mankind will find something to worship even if it's not the one true Trinitarian God, okay? So one, from nature, we can know that God exists. And two, just from nature, we can know that we've rebelled against him. Even thieves don't like being stolen from, right? Even before you realize murder is wrong, I guarantee you the first time you murder somebody, you feel bad, okay? That we can know just from nature that God exists and that we've rebelled against him. Every culture that's ever arisen has had laws against killing, murder. Every culture that's ever arisen has had laws against certain types of sexual impropriety. Now, some will let you do some things that others want, but all agree that you can't just do whatever you want whenever you want, right? But that's about all you can know from general revelation. There's enough knowledge of God in nature to damn you, but not enough knowledge of God in nature to save you. For that, you need special revelation, meaning the Bible. You need God's Word inscripturated so we can learn who God is and what He has done and what He requires and what He has provided in Christ. We need that. Now, here's why I tell you this. Here in verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 18, the Apostle Paul is quoting Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 19, 4. Psalm 19 is about God's general revelation. So I say all that just to summarize here. Psalm 19 is about how we can know how God is great just from nature. But the Apostle Paul is taking that verse and using it to say that the message of the gospel, special revelation, the message about Christ has gone out to the known world. How is he able to do that? Is he misunderstanding the passage? Is he quoting it out of context? No, you have to understand where the Apostle Paul is drawing the analogy. The Apostle Paul is not saying Psalm 19 is originally about Jesus. He's saying that in the same way that the gospel or that general revelation goes out to all people, so the message of the gospel is going out to all people. He's drawing the analogy and the fact that they're both universal, not that they're the same kind of revelation. Let me back up and say it this way. People mistake, make a lot of mistakes when they think about analogies, okay? There is no such thing as a perfect analogy or else it would be that thing. Does that make sense? So if I say Tim is like Jeff, he can't be exactly like Jeff or else he would be Jeff and there would be no Tim. Does that make sense? I can't even say that this chair is like exactly like that chair because it's not exactly like that chair because one's over here and one's over here. Okay? So anytime you use an analogy, you have to ask, where are we drawing the analogy? Here the analogy is not between what Psalm 19 is talking about and what Paul's talking about. It's the fact that Psalm 19 talks about the gospel going out 
I'm sorry, got knowledge of God generally going out, and Paul here is talking about the gospel going out. So we had a membership class last week, and uh, I said this in the class. I said, we desperately need preschool volunteers. We are drowning in children. We need preschool volunteers. You don't have to be good at it. You don't have to love kids. You just have to not be a felon, okay? We will train you on the rest. And then I said this. I said, I guarantee you they are more afraid of you than you are of them. They're like spiders, okay? Now, does that mean that I don't love our kids? Does that mean that I think our kids have eight legs? Does that mean that I think you should smush our kids? No. The analogy is not that they're like spiders in every way. The analogy is in the same way that a bug is afraid of you, they're afraid of you, so be confident. That's the point, okay? So I say all of that to say, here the Apostle Paul is saying that in the same way that general knowledge about God has gone out, the gospel has gone out, okay? So let's read it again, and then I want to tell you what Paul is saying. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Is the problem of people's disbelief that they haven't heard the message, usually? Uh, Is the problem of disbelief an intellectual issue? No. The problem of disbelief, whether you're a heretic, you're an atheist, you're a non-Christian, whatever it is, the problem is not intellectual, it's spiritual. That's what Paul's saying. The problem is not that the Jews of his day hadn't heard about Christ, it's that they don't want to submit to him. That's the point that he's making, okay? The problem of disbelief is not intellectual. The problem is spiritual. So there was a guy who went to the same place that I went to school to study theology, and uh, he was an atheist. He faked a testimony, faked a church endorsement, went and got his degree in theology, and was a non-Christian the entire time, okay? He then wrote a book about his experience called Chapter and Verse about his experience studying theology as a non-Christian, and he said this. He said that the problem for him wasn't that there weren't good arguments to be made for God's existence, for who Christ is, or whatever it is. He said that the reason he didn't want to become a Christian is because he'd have to stop sleeping around, stop getting drunk, and stop living the way that he wanted to. The problem's not an intellectual issue, right? It's not that Christianity's not smart enough. If you're not a Christian, it's because there's been an error in your thinking, which is why most of the smartest men in world history have been Christians. But rather, it's a spiritual issue. There's another class I was in, and there was a guy on YouTube that had made a video making fun of Christianity. He was pointing out what he called logical fallacies in Christianity. So in a logic class I was taking, me and some buddies made a video in response to him pointing out the logical fallacies he was making in his logical fallacies video. He then messaged us and said, I have been outdone. I think that you guys are right. But he still didn't want to become a Christian. He's like, you know, you guys beat my arguments. I don't know what to do. We're like, what do you mean what what to do? Believe in Jesus. But he didn't want to because it's not an intellectual issue. It is a spiritual issue. Paul is saying the problem with the Jews in the first century is the same problem in all of our wicked, sinful hearts before we're regenerated. It's that we don't want to submit to Christ. We don't want that to be true. We invent things like atheism as a crutch to make ourselves feel better because we realize that we've sinned against God, but we don't want to have salvation the way he says to have it. That's what Paul is saying. Now look at this last part of verse 18. This one's interesting. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For look at this. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Growing up in church, one of the things that I often heard pastors say is something like this. We need to get out there and do more missions and evangelism because Jesus can't come back until every person has heard about Christ. You ever heard somebody say something like that? Right? As if we somehow are delaying and changing the day on which Christ is coming back because of our lack of faithfulness or our increased faithfulness. 
The big problem with that is that it reads your view of all nations back onto the text. Here the Apostle Paul says the gospel has gone out to all nations. You see, the Reformers read the book of Acts, where the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and then they looked at their day and said, mission accomplished. This isn't the only place that happens. Colossians 1.6 in talking about the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which, uh, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, it is true that Christ can't come back till the gospel has gone to all nations, but wait a second, it might have already gone to all nations. You have to realize all nations doesn't mean every single person has heard. In the Bible, all nations just mean that it's gone out generally. It's gone out to the known world. It's gone out to the Gentiles specifically, okay? That has nothing mainly to do with the sermon, but it is an aside where the Apostle Paul is saying, the gospel's gone out. The gospel's gone out. Verses 19 through 21. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let me ask you this question. Why do most Jews not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Just as a reminder, Paul's not anti-Semitic. Paul's Jewish. He worships someone who's Jewish. He's critiquing Judaism because of the bad theology, not because of their ethnicity or something. He's not Hitler. Why is it that most Jews have not believed in Jesus. Do you know why? It's because he died on a cross. That's a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Jews were not expecting a Messiah to come in weakness and to die for their sins. They were expecting merely a political Messiah. They're thinking they need somebody like they had in the intertestamental period, like Judas Maccabeus, someone who's going to come and be like King David Jr., who's going to kill all the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. That's what they're expecting. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, your problem's not Rome, your problem's sin, and then Jesus dies on a cross, they think, that can't be the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't get killed. The Messiah kills. The Messiah doesn't get crucified. The Messiah crucifies. Now, the reason that they're doing that is, listen, this is very important. They're reading their presuppositions back onto the Old Testament. How do they miss it? They're not reading the Old Testament with an open view. They're not reading the Old Testament and looking for what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament promises a slain Messiah. It promises someone who's pierced for our transgressions. It promises someone born in Bethlehem, which is this little nothing city. That's what the Old Testament promises. How do they miss that? Well, because when they come to the Old Testament, they have all these preconceived notions. That's what a presupposition is. It's a pre-assumption, okay? It's something that you suppose pre, hence the name presupposition. So when they read the Old Testament, they don't see a slain Messiah. They don't see a Messiah needing to redeem them away from God's wrath. They're just looking for a political Messiah. And because they're reading their presuppositions back onto the Bible, they miss it. Okay? They miss it. Let me, let me give you an example. So we taught a little bit about presuppositions and theological equipping a while back. And here's what we did. I had someone in the class, a young man, come up to the front of the room, all right, in front of the whiteboard. And I said this, I want you to write exactly what I tell you. I want you to draw a picture of exactly what I say. No more, no less. Do not add to it. Do not take from it. I'm going to tell you what to draw. I just want you to draw that picture. Got it? Got it. 
I said, draw this picture. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, okay? So he starts drawing his picture, and he's drawing little bricks, and he draws Humpty Dumpty, and he gives him a little hat, and he draws out little feet and these kind of things. And I say, okay, thank you. He sits down. And then I say this, why did you draw Humpty Dumpty as an egg? I didn't say he was an egg. The nursery rhyme doesn't say he's an egg. (gasps) It's about a man who dies, okay? Somebody named Humpty Dumpty. It never says he's an egg. Why did he draw it as an egg? Because he was reading his presupposition back onto what I'm saying. We do this all the time. Think in your mind for a second. Into the book of, think about the book of Revelation, and it talks about the Lamb's book of life. Okay, I want you to think about what that book of life looks like. Okay? So think of Jesus opening the book, looking at the Lamb's book of life. If right now you're thinking of an image of a book like we have in modern day, where you have pages that you turn and a cover on the front and on the back, that is called a codex. That doesn't come until hundreds of years after the book of Revelation is written. The Lamb's book of life is a scroll. Why did most of us think of an actual codex, a book like we have today and like a modern novel? Because we read our presuppositions back onto the text. What the Jews are doing is they're reading their political presuppositions back onto the Old Testament, and that's why they miss that Jesus is the Messiah. It is a problem of hermeneutics. It is a problem of interpretation. It's a problem of theology. Now, that's why Jews generally don't follow Jesus. There's another reason, though, that the Apostle Paul is giving here in this passage, and it has to do with these presuppositions. Let's read it again. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. One of the reasons that the Jews are not following Jesus in the first century is because so many Jews are not following Jesus and because so many Gentiles are coming into the faith. And so what they're doing is they're presupposing that if this message is true, most Jews will accept it and most Gentiles won't. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that's a presupposition. The Old Testament itself says that the Jews are going to reject him and Gentiles are going to get into the faith. That you Jews of my day are failing to discern the times. You're failing to see the writing on the wall. The fact that Gentiles are coming into the faith and the fact that so many Jews are not is evidence that the message is true because the Bible, the Old Testament, people like Moses and Isaiah and such are saying that's what's going to happen. And that's why they miss it. That's why they miss it. They fail to have that discernment. They fail to be socially aware and see what God is doing. There's a guy who works out at the gym where my family goes. And instead of working out, here's what he does. He comes into the gym, stands in the middle of the floor, puts on his headphones, and he starts dancing and playing with a ball. Okay? I have often refrained from shooting him. Often. Okay? He just cannot see. Everyone else, they walk by, they kind of look at him. He goes by someone else where they're working out, and they leave that equipment, and they go do equipment somewhere else. He just fails to see that everybody sees something that he doesn't see. Okay? He lacks that type of awareness. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you're missing it. If you don't realize the fact that Gentiles are getting into the faith, this is what the Old Testament promised. God's not just the God of, the, uh, the, of Israel, of the Jews. He's the God of the whole world, that all nations will flock to Zion. That's what Paul is saying. Now, I want to end by looking at one verse here in particular that I think is tremendously encouraging. Look at verse 20. In talking about how you and I got into the faith. So before I read this passage, raise your hand in here if you're ethnically Jewish. That's what I thought, a bunch of Gentiles. So listen to this, because this is directed to you, Gentiles. Verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Salvation is 100% God's grace to us. When God saves sinners, he saves people that aren't looking for him. You didn't find Jesus because Jesus wasn't lost. He found you because you were lost. The Bible says that there is, quote, none who seeks for God. What about me? And then it says, no, not one. Okay? So in salvation, what God does is he takes people who are not looking for him, who don't want to submit to him, and he shows up and he changes their heart and grants them salvation through the gospel. It's incredible. It is 100% through and through God's mercy and his love and his grace. There's actually a passage in the Quran where Allah says that if you will walk to me, I will run to you. That's what it says. The problem is, biblically, we don't want to walk to God. We want to run away from him. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, so Christianity does one better. The God of Christianity would say that even when you run from me, I will pursue you. I will chase you. You see, what God does in salvation is he gives it to people that didn't deserve it, that didn't want it, that weren't looking for it. He shows up, shows them how great Christ is, and then we just can't get enough. He does it all. He does it all. And the Apostle Paul points to that here in verse 20. Well, let's pray as the volunteers helping serve communion come to the front to pass out the elements.